You're listening to the American Alpine Club podcast. This is Hannah Provo, content manager at the American Alpine Club. In this episode, writer, podcaster, and Yosemite lover Lauren Delaney Miller interviews Adrian Costa about his rad adaptive rope solo of El Cap. Tune in to get all the beta on Adrian's climb, funded by the AAC Catalyst Grant. Hi, Adrian. Thanks so much for coming on the American Alpine Club podcast today. Yeah, thanks, Lauren. I'm super stoked to be here. So we are here to talk about a pretty special uh, solo trip you took on El Cap in Yosemite last year. But before we get into those details, I wanted to hear a bit more um, broadly about you as a climber. And I was wondering how climbing first came into your life. Huh, that's funny. I think climbing first came into my life just as a kid, just roaming around boulders and kind of scrambling and messing around. Um, I actually have family in France close to Fontainebleau. Um, so yeah, we'd go there and kind of roam around the boulders before I knew what climbing was. Um, and then, yeah, for a good chunk of my adolescence and teenage years, I was, I was a bike racer, actually a road, road bike racer. So I, um, yeah, I always loved the mountains. Like I loved riding my bike in the mountains. That's what inspired me the most. Um, but yeah, I was super focused on just being the best bike racer I could be. And then, um, yeah, I guess I was probably 20 years old or so. And, um, I was living in Europe and, you know, doing the full pro bike racer thing. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, kind of grew a little disenchanted with uh, the monotony of it and sort of how, I don't know. I just remember having a vision of, of my life for the next 20 years being this, this, um, this cycle of eat, train, (laughs) rest and Mm -hmm. eat again and go to bed and do it all over again the next day. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I just felt like I felt like life was kind of slipping through my hands and I felt like I could do a lot more diverse and exciting things with it. And um, yeah, I don't know. I kind of lost interest in, in the bike racing world and was kind of simultaneously gaining interest in, in more adventure pursuits, um, whether that was on the bike or on foot. So yeah, I took a break from bike racing and I was um, working on a few like honey and cheese farms in the French Alps. And on (laughs) whenever I had a couple hours, I would go, you know, go scramble up something and um, yeah, I just had a ton of fun. And then when I, when I came back to the States, eventually I, I knew I wanted to kind of learn the ropes and learn how things work, you know? (laughs) Um, So, so yeah, I just started in the climbing gym, like a lot of people do. Um, And um met this French guy in the Bay area actually, um, who took me out and, you know, showed me the basics of multi-pitching and belaying and all that good stuff. So, um, yeah, I don't know, kind of one thing led into another. And then, um, I was living in the Bay at the time and then I moved up to here to Bend, Oregon and, um, you know, Bend's obviously a really big climbing town. And one of my roommates, um, in college was actually a pretty hardcore sport climber. So, I was really lucky to learn a lot of good things from him and kind of, yeah, met a lot of good people and got a lot of good experiences through the the climbing community here. Um, and, um, yeah, I don't know, actually coming from cycling, what I, what I really enjoyed starting out was actually just ski mountaineering. Um, like here in the sisters, it was really easy to go, you know, skin up one of, one of the sisters before class or something. And, um, 
yeah, I got into like a lot of, a lot of solo mountaineering pretty quick too, just cause I had a lot of fitness from cycling. I think that kind of allowed me to just charge into situations that I probably wasn't totally ready for technically. <laughs> um, and then, um, and then, yeah. So I guess after that first summer of living Ben, I took a road trip with a buddy here and we, you know, we went over to like Jackson and, um, spent some time in Bozeman, so on and so forth. Um, eventually I ended up in the Sierras actually, um, I was climbing up in Tuolumne and, um, yeah, I, I, I'd been climbing for like three days in a row and wanted to give my arms a break. So I decided to go do like a little mountaineering link up. I'm sure, you know, the classic like North peak ice couloir into Kness Northridge. So I went out and tried to do that. Um, the, the Shrund on North peak was actually like pretty pretty gnarly like overhanging snow and it was really warm so like my tools were just ripping through that um so i was like okay this is not going i'm just gonna go hike over to kness and i start approaching the north ridge for kness um and um I, I had like no beta for the route and it looked like i could access the ridge by kind of cutting left before uh, a little earlier before the ridge uh through a talus field um so yeah, I kind of start questing through this talus field and I'm going pretty fast and kind of stumbling around on a couple of loose blocks, but I don't, I don't really think too much of it until, yeah, next thing I know, I'm, I'm like pinned right above my knee by like a 2000 pound granite boulder that, that had just shifted and, and, and I fell with it. Um, so yeah, like in an instant, I found myself pinned by, by this boulder and, um, yeah, I kind of like freaked out, threw my backpack off and turned out it was out of reach. So I had no food or water or, uh, you know, phone, not that the phone was very helpful. And this was before I'd go out with an in reach. So, <laughs> um, yeah, my last resort was to kind of just scream for my life really. So, um, yeah, for a good 45 minutes, I kind of just was howling for help. And, um, yeah, I can tell you that's, experiences like that make you realize that we're just uh we're just animals kind of clinging for this little little slice of life we get to have um so yeah i i was really i was really lucky that there were a couple climbers that had just done um north peak i believe um and they were hanging out at some lakes below below kness and they heard me heard me uh shouting for help and they came up and um kind of got the whole rescue started um they were a lot of fires that summer. So yeah, took a, took ages for the helicopter to come. I was under that boulder for probably like seven or eight hours. Um, by that point, there was really not much hope for, for the leg. Um, you know, at, at that, at that time, I didn't really care about losing a leg or not. It was kind of like, I want nothing more than to just be able to move freely <laughs> and walk around, you know? And, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, those were those were some really like transformational hours for me just kind of sitting there and and um yeah realizing that that the mountains are an unforgiving place and they may look beautiful but you know you don't respect them or you don't focus for for a second and that's all it takes to to pay for it so i don't know it was <sighs> it was tough. And I remember thinking like, Oh, if I ever get out of here, I'm never going to climb again. Like, I don't care. Like I, I'm just going to be happy. And 
you know, live a simple life and, and, and not take anything for granted. Um, but then, um, yeah, I mean, the, the recovery process honestly was, was, was really not the, not the, not the craziest. Like I was in the hospital for two weeks and, um, literally the only injury I had was, was my leg. Um, and so, yeah, I had like, I think five surgeries to like progressively cut off, um, dead tissue. Um, they were trying to be as conservative as conservative as they could, but, um, yeah, I mean, once, once I, I was out of the hospital, um, and weaning off pain meds, I was already like crutching into the climbing gym and <laughs> riding the stationary bike with one leg. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. I think I really grounded my recovery in, in just getting back to the things that I loved doing before. And, um, I remember like sitting down and making a list of, of goals I had in the mountains. And I was adamant about not ruling anything out because of having a prosthetic. Um, that being said at the time, I was pretty naive about what having a prosthetic even meant, <laughs> um, and what was possible, but you know, my mentality was like, you know, if you want to do it, you'll find a way. And I still try to try to abide by that. And I think, I think having that goal to like get back and, and be a, a better, even a better climber than I was before really helped me. Um, yeah, just keep that vision for the future and, and keep doing the right things and keep caring for myself and, and yeah, just keep moving forward. Cause I think, I think it, uh, with, without, without that motivation, like something, something life-changing and permanent like that can really, yeah, it can be really heavy for people. And it's, you know, to me, it feels like you have a choice between just giving up and, and, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, just giving up or, or you can choose to, uh, you know, make the most of it and seize life by the horns. And so I think in a lot of ways, you know, it's an experience that, that sort of told me that showed me that life was precious and that, you know, we only get one chance at it. And, um, yeah, I mean, going forward, I really try to not take anything for granted and, um, make the most of, of the time I have here. So, yeah, that's sort of what I've been up to since. <laughs> yeah, thank you for telling us all of that. So that accident was the summer of 2018. And yep. we are talking about a big climb that you did here at the end of 2021. And I'm kind of curious when the idea for climbing El Capsolo came into your head. Like, what point <laughs> were you in your recovery process where you felt like this was the goal that you were going to work towards? Or this was like thing that felt... Um, like an achievable thing that you wanted to reach for? Yeah, I think, I think um, it first started kind of bouncing around in my head. I, I, I soloed uh, Lunar Ecstasy in Zion um, in a day. Actually, I'd fixed like a few pitches, but um, blasted that in a day. And granted, it's pretty short route compared to LCAP size routes. But, you know, I knew my systems were good and I knew I could actually move really efficiently alone. Um, and um, I kind of really just love that challenge. And um, yeah, I just sort of felt that as soon, as soon as I could figure out the, the hauling and the overnight logistics, like, yeah, I felt like anything was possible. So yeah, <laughs> I guess, yeah, that was, that was like a year before, a year or so before, uh, before heading to Yosemite. Yeah, and so you mentioned the logistics and I'd like to get into that a little bit for people that are unfamiliar with the kind of technical details and the complicated nature of big wall soloing. Can you just 
tell us a little bit about how that works in general? Like what does big wall soloing look like? Big wall soloing looks like a lot of work. <laughs> Imagine <laughs> clocking into a construction job at 5 a.m. and clocking out at 8 p.m. <laughs> for five days in a row. Um, no, yeah, it's a lot of work because you don't have a partner to help you. So therefore, you you climb each pitch and um, you self-belay your, yourself. So you attach the rope at the bottom of the pitch and feed the rope through a belay device. And you get to the top, you fix the other end of your rope, you go back down the pitch, you unfix your rope that was attached to the bottom maker, and then you set up your haul bags um, and so on and so forth for hauling. And then you jug back up the pitch you just climbed, taking out all your pieces and you get to the top and then you get to haul <laughs> the most fun part. And you do that, you know, times the number of pitches on, on El Cap. So, so yeah, it's a lot of work. And I was, I was kind of expecting to have, have time to chill on the portal ledge in the evening and kind of take it all in. But yeah, I was very busy for four days. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned that even before your accident, you had been really interested in kind of solo adventures. And I'm curious if you could tell us what about being alone in the mountains is um, so inspiring for you. Yeah, I mean, this is something I've been thinking about a lot recently, just because, um, you know, I think soloing on ice and in the mountains in the Alpine is a little different than soloing rock. Um, I think soloing ice is a lot more secure. And yeah, for a while after my accident, I was soloing on rock a decent amount, but um, I'm trying to limit that now just because it's starting to feel like it's not really worth the rewards. And, you know, I've had a couple calls that were a little scary. Um, but yeah, I mean, with regards to selling the mountains as well, like it's, it's really fun and I love it um, just because it's kind of like, it's your experience and you make it what you want. And I, I find that I can tap into like a flow state a lot more easily on my own because I, I just become totally immersed in the process and what I'm doing. And um, yeah, like borderline, just kind of out of body connection with the environment and um, get to a point where I don't really have to think about things. They kind of mm -hmm. just happen and flow. Um, and so, so yeah, I really love that you can be kind of the agent of your own adventure and sort of, um, yeah, have, have really precious experiences out there that are purely yours, you know? Um, yeah, I don't know. So I think, I think that's the draw. It's not necessarily like the risk or that it's harder that makes it attractive to me or anything. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think all my most special climbs or most of my most special climbs have actually been alone. So <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny. Yeah. And so I read in your trip report that you'd originally wanted to climb Zodiac, but then got to the base and found some wet rock and then ended up <laughs> switching over to Tangerine trip. And so I'd love if you could just take us back to that first day and kind of walk us through from getting up to the base, um, to through to your first night on the wall. Yeah, totally. So I had actually like driven down from Bend the night before and like showed up in the valley and there was like a foot of fresh snow up high. So Horsetail Falls was like dumping all over the right side. Um, and yeah, Zodiac was soaked and I think it would have dried up in like a day or even by that afternoon, but I didn't really want to start a four day, a four day climb just soaking wet. So I, I had a topo for Tangerine trip and, um, you know, I actually like was kind of psyched on more psyched on that just because the climbing looked a little harder. And um, I think it's a route that gets done a little bit less than Zodiac. 
Um, and yeah, I had all the gear for it. So I was like, yeah, let's, let's go do the trip. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, it was as simple as that. And what's really cool about, what about the right, the right side of El Cap is like, I mean, I think it overhangs by like a couple hundred feet, you know, from top to bottom. And I'm pretty sure like the first descent of Zodiac was done in the winter. Um, and so, yeah, it was really cool, like being on this extremely overhanging wall with water kind of like pouring out behind me. <laughs> um, and yeah, I was warm and toasty and having a great time. So <laughs> that's awesome. And so you get a few pitches up that day, but you still have a dozen or so pitches and a couple more days to go. Um, how did the next few days unfold for you? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a little kind of a bummer on the first day. Like I, I only bivvied like a pitch and a half up because there was a nice little ledge there. But but yeah, after 12 hours of work, I was only a pitch and a half off the ground. But um, yeah, after that, I kind of got into a rhythm and, you know, I kind of would make a goal every morning of like, okay, fix to here, bivy here. Um, and I would just kind of charge for that every day. Um, and what seemed to, to work best just with the way the route was, there seemed to always be nice bivvies. Um, yeah, every five to six pitches. And so I would try to climb to the bivy and if I could like fix a pitch above me, um, that way in the morning I could just get going and, and, and haul uh, first thing in the morning. Um, yeah, I had kind of a, a snafu with, with my tagline on one pitch, which cost me a lot of time. Like I just had it, um, coiled up in, in a rope bag and it got stuck on something. And so I had to like go down, fix that, go back up, um, set up the anchor <laughs> and then go back down again and, you know, get everything ready to haul and so on. So, yeah, I mean, things like that make you realize that like, yeah, big wall soloing, there's, there's a laundry list checklist, um, of things you have to do and things have to be done correctly. And if you mess up one thing, it's going to cost you hours. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the, the part of it I really like, though, is like you have to be really dialed and really think two steps ahead before you do anything, because everything you do has consequences and no one's there to help you fix them. So, um, yeah, and I think <laughs> thinking back, um, one of the one of the scarier pitches was, oh, man, I don't know, probably like 12 or 13 or something. It was like the chossiest pitch of the route. And it was my last night on the wall. And I knew I had to fix that pitch in order to be able to top out the next day. And so I was climb, you know, climbing the, the chassis pitch of the route in the dark. My headlamp batteries were slowly dying on me. And I was like, oh, man, like <laughs> if these die on me during this pitch, this is going to suck. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was I was like trying to climb as fast as possible while staying relaxed. And um, thankfully, the batteries held on just long enough to me for me to like make out the anchor above and and uh, eventually get in bed and, and finish her up the next day. So, yeah, no, I mean, it was, it was an amazing experience. Yeah. Can you also just describe to us a little bit what the climbing is like up there, right? This is mostly an aid route. Um, so yeah. what type of, like, what does your rack look like? What does each pitch look like? You mentioned one of the scariest pitches here, but I'm wondering if there's any other really memorable pitches. <laughs> Yeah, I think the other memorable, uh, two two memorable pitches. One was the first pitch. Actually, I started on on Lost in America, and um, the topo like had it as like C three bad fall or something. <laughs> and you know, when you're soloing, your falls are going to be a lot bigger. So I was off this like two cam belay 
right off the deck. And um, yeah, I knew very well that if I were to blow a single piece on that first 50 foot section of that pitch, it would potentially be a ground fault. So that was, that was a little spooky. Um, kind of just had to breathe and, and stay calm and, you know, make sure everything was good. Um, yeah. And then the other memorable pitch is like, I think pitch four is a uh, hundred sixty foot leftward traverse that would be really hard to to back out from. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I knew that that once once I did that pitch, I'd be pretty committed on the route. Um, not to mention that wrapping off such a steep wall is a little challenging as well. Um, but yeah, in terms of the climbing, like it's it's interesting. It's it's a lot of really thin thin cracks. Um, I was pretty psyched to like it, it went all clean. Um, pulled out like beaks a couple times, but otherwise just a lot of cam hooking, um, in really thin cracks. And I don't know, cam hooks a lot of the time feel more bomber than like any other, <laughs> any other thing you can get in there. Um, yeah, I, I think when all clean, there was one move where I like intertwined two nuts to like reach, uh, reach a rivet, I think, or something. Um, but yeah, the trip has a lot of, especially on the, on the upper head wall, there's a lot of rivet ladders and a lot of fixed heads. Um, and so on the upper third, I was able to like really start boogieing and, um, yeah, I don't know. It was fun. It was fun. Yeah. I, I had done the nose like a couple of weeks before and, um, you know, the eight on that's like super straightforward. You're just like plugging a cam and you can kind of like hand jam and get your feet in the cracks. So you're kind of Frenching like most of the route. Um, and so, yeah, it was cool to do something a little more aid intensive for sure. Yeah. And so, like you mentioned, one of the struggles of being solo on a big wall is that you need to do all the hauling yourself. And so you have quite a bit of stuff. And so, right. um, so all of a sudden it's four days later, you're on top of El Cap with about a hundred pounds of equipment, um, <laughs> with a notoriously strenuous descent. Can you tell yeah. us about how your descent went? Oh man, I'm glad you asked about the descent because that was kind of an epic. Um, <laughs> As it is for a lot of yeah, seriously climbers, I think no matter yeah. how experienced. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I top out and there's you know like four different mountains of gear starting to pile up, and I'm like, oh man, I really don't want to have to come back up here tomorrow morning to make another trip. So I very stubbornly, you know, packed my haul bag up like several feet above my head and <laughs> started hobbling my way down. Um, and yeah, actually, I think I like, I think I stumbled really hard onto my prosthetic foot at some point, but the foot actually broke. Um, the prosthetic foot, it's like, if you can imagine those running blades that uh, Paralympic athletes use, it's like a shorter version of those. Um, and so, yeah, the carbon had cracked. So it was like, I could still walk on it, but it was pretty wobbly. And um, yeah, I just had to like slow down even more. Um, I shuttled my gear I shuttled like my gear in two loads down the exposed section of the east ledges and then made the wraps um, just one time with, with all my stuff. And yeah, very painfully hobbled my way down the trail back back to the road. And um, yeah, I met up with the climber I'd met on the nose actually um, a couple of weeks earlier and he helped me carry my ledge out for the last few minutes. and we chatted and had a, had a brew in his car. So yeah, it was kind of nice to have someone to <laughs> hang out with after being uh, alone for, for four days. So, yeah. 
Yeah, I'm curious. You mentioned a couple of favorite pitches and a memorable descent, but I'm wondering, you said you didn't have that much time to sit and take in the view because you were so busy the whole time. But when right. you reflect on it, were there other moments, non-climbing moments that kind of stick with you? Hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, just hanging out in the ledge in the evening and sort of just being able to breathe and, and relax and be like, wow, I'm, <laughs> you know, two thirds of the way up all cap right now by myself. Um, yeah, I think that's really cool. It's yeah. Super unique experience. Um, and then, yeah, otherwise the most memorable thing was like the, the last couple of pitches I was able to, to free climb a bit more. And that was just like, and I was way more just kind of flowing super well. And so, it was just super fun to just be able to do moderate free climbing with like 2000 feet of air um, below your feet <laughs> to finish out the trip. So, yeah. Yeah. And so you mentioned, right, you're up there with a prosthetic that obviously was not maybe totally equipped for you plus a 100 pound pack on a technical descent on the way down. And it just makes me wonder kind of when you're planning for a big trip or a big climb like this, what sort of things do you need to think about and prepare for that you think that other climbers might not normally think about? Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, it's a lot, it's a lot different for, for rock climbing versus like alpine climbing and ice climbing. Um, but I'll stick with, with rock climbing for now. I mean, uh, my system is actually pretty simple and I've, I've been trying to keep it that way. Um, I know people have specialized feet and so on and so forth, but actually, I just get a prosthetic foot that's a size bigger and I actually shave off the there's toes on them um, and the toes are just like this flexible like styrofoam stuff. <laughs> so I, I shave those off. So I'm, uh, I'm kind of left with the edge, which is carbon fiber and nice and solid. And I just throw a regular climbing shoe on there, um, which makes it nice because on a multi-pitch, I don't have to carry uh, a walking foot in my, in my pack. Um, and same for the approach. I just carry climbing shoes. Um, yeah, on, on this climb, I did not bring an extra foot. I did on the nose, um, just to have a backup in case, in case it breaks. Like I've, <laughs> I've chopped them in half, taken big whippers before. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. I think part of my thinking too, is like, if you take a fall big enough to break a prosthetic foot, it'll probably mess up a normal foot too. And you don't have backups of those. So you kind of just have to deal. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but yeah, rock climbing, rock climbing. I try to keep it pretty simple. So yeah. And actually um, forgot to mention um, for a four day climb. So the, the prosthetic I use actually has, has a battery and a mm -hmm. bunch of electronics um, in it. Um, so, so yeah, I have to carry like a little battery pack and, and charge that every night. Um, but yeah, other than that, like that's, that's kind of as far as it goes for like, you know, specific, um, prosthetic equipment I'd bring on a, on a climb like this at least. Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> when I first saw this, this catalyst grant from AAC, I was just super stoked. Cause I think, um, it can be really hard for a lot of people to sort of believe in themselves, um, and to think they can go out and, and make some audacious dream happen and to have to have funding and support and belief from you know our leading organization for climbing in the states like that's that means a lot and you know i wanted to i wanted to do something big to kind of honor that and to show that you know um yeah you can make your wildest dreams happen with with the right preparation and the right mindset so 
yeah, that was, that was definitely part of my motivation behind this climb. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, in the climbing community in general, um, you know, it's, it's been a pretty mixed bag. I think you meet, you meet, you meet some really cool people that are really open-minded and, you know, seem to really believe in, in what you're trying to do and want to help you, you know, figure it out and, and help you accomplish those goals. I think there's also just a lot of, a lot of assumption of ability, which has been pretty frustrating. And, um, that's one of the reasons I don't love climbing in the gym actually is because like in the gym, you get a lot of, a lot of folks that kind of will walk up, up, uh, walk up to me and ask me like if I've ever been to Smith or ever led outside or something like that. And it's just kind of frustrating that they assume that, you know, all, all you can do with a prosthetic is top rope in the gym or something. So, um, yeah, I think, I think it just comes down to like open-mindedness really. And, and sort of not, not, um, assuming, from what you see um so yeah i mean i think i think um grants like this just bring a lot of visibility and i think the outdoor industry has been definitely heading in the right direction so yeah it's exciting yeah and so um you wrote at the end of your trip report that being able to participate in sports again after your accident helps you regain kind of a sense of agency and independence. Totally. And I was kind of wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what that's been like for you. Yeah. I mean, personally, I'm, I'm really stoked on, on just alpinism and alpine climbing. And that sort of encompasses everything from walking on glaciers and knowing how to get yourself out of a crevasse to like avalanche and snow safety to, to big wall climbing and, 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 and that skill set. And so I really like that. It's kind of the combination of all these things. And to me, it's kind of the ultimate challenge um, which is why I'm stoked on it, especially as an adaptive climber. I think it kind of shows that like all of these different subsets of climbing can be mastered and can be learned and can be made accessible. Um, but, um, yeah, so there, when I'm out there, like fully immersed in the process, like I was saying on El Cap, like you, you kind of just become one with the wall and one with the process. Um, that feeling of competency and agency and like self-reliance is so strong. And um, yeah, I think I'm able to like transfer a lot of that just to life and, you know, realizing that like you have an idea, you have a dream, um, you know, you just got to find out how to get there and kind of commit to it. And yeah, nothing's impossible. Um, and yeah, I don't think it's, I don't think it's necessarily specific to climbing either. Like last summer I was working with um, Oregon Adaptive Sports, just a, an adaptive uh, organization here in Bend. And um, it was so incredible just seeing the progress folks were making throughout the summer. We were mostly focused on, on cycling and, and hiking, but um, yeah, the ones that stuck with it and, and would come every week, like by the end of the summer, we had an athlete that used, used her legs on a bike for the first time in, I think 15 years or something. Um, and other athletes like you know, riding for like two hours straight by the end of the summer. Um, and yeah, just the smiles on their faces and the happiness was just, yeah, infectious. And <laughs> I think, yeah, I think sport just gives people, you know, yeah, this, this, this belief in themselves, this agency that, you know, they can actually regain control of their life and, and, um, you know, choose what they want to do and, 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 and improve at those things. And then maybe most importantly, the community you get from, from sport, um, you know, the climbing community is really strong, but just 
in anything you're doing, just the support network that you get from participating in these things. Um, yeah, I think it gives people, yeah, gives people um, a community to, to, to talk and, and um, yeah, just, just feel like a normal human being. So I think that's, that's all anyone really wants is just to be seen for who they are and, um, you know, not to be judged by the way they look or the things they struggle with. Because at the end of the day, I think, I think we all struggle with things. They're just, some are, are more visible than others. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and so of course I want to know about what's next for you. If you have trips planned or climbs <laughs> that you're looking at, and I know that climbers hate the pre-spray and right. can always want to talk about <laughs> objectives, but I'm curious, like if you're after doing that, if you feel like, um, yeah, pulled in any certain type of direction or if you've got anything else planned. Totally. Um, I mean, for the last couple of months or so, I've been really focused on ice climbing and, and alpine climbing um, up here in the Cascades. And there's a lot of a lot of things I I want to accomplish still this winter. Um, yeah, and sort of viewing those as stepping stone routes um, to to hopefully get into into some bigger ranges in the in the future. I don't want to I don't want to you know jump across any steps too quickly. So I. Yeah, I think this just this whole process of the accident and then learning to adapt again has kind of shown me that it's worth taking the time to master what you're doing um, before before jumping in too deep of water. Um, <laughs> and then, yeah, I, I I really want to make it back to Yosemite and start trying to do things a little faster. And um, as I've been reading up on more of the history of some of these aid climbs too, it, um, it's getting me pretty stoked to to, to do some more obscure aid climbing and, um, yeah, hopefully another, another solo just cause yeah, it's just such a, <laughs> such a powerful experience. You get in such a short amount of time that it's hard to not want more. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I guess I was also curious if you've been able to like connect with a lot of other adaptive climbers or if that's kind of factored into any of your climbing at all. Yeah. It's been a little bit tough. It feels like, it feels like, um, the community is really small in the adaptive climbing world. And, and it feels like the few folks that are doing it kind of have their, their little niche and, and, and focus on specializing there. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's been a really incredible year, like just with adapt adaptive uh, athletes in the mountains, like thinking about Vasu, Vasu ski off Denali. And um, I'm friends with, with Ronnie Dixon, who, you know, turns out five thirteens regularly um, but yeah, what I've sort of experienced in being a part of the, the adaptive world, um, through OAS is that there are a lot of programs out there for folks to, to try, to try climbing and try other, you know, adaptive sports. Um, but, um, the reality of it is that like, it's a much bigger investment for, for someone with a disability to just dabble, whereas, you know, any, any other person can just walk into a climbing gym, rent a pair of shoes and try it for an afternoon where someone that needs adaptations, the initial investment is so much higher and so much more committing just financially and time-wise to find things that work for you. And so I think that's kind of an inherent challenge is that I think adaptive folks just have to want it a lot more than, um, you know, the general population. And that doesn't mean it's not possible, but um, yeah, the, the, the entry fee is a lot higher. And then I think the other thing I've noticed is that once folks kind of graduate from 
from these adaptive programs, they're kind of left empty handed and kind of on their own because there isn't really much of a support network for helping folks that want to take their activity to that next level to figure out, you know, solutions that are efficient and um, can handle the, the, the wear and tear of the mountains. And um, yeah, I think that's a space that I'd like to I'd like to occupy a little bit more in the future is, is sort of, um, yeah, creating a, a support network for, for those guys that guys and gals that, that want to, that really want to get after it and take that step further. And I think that's what's missing. And, um, you know, having, having the support of the AAC is already a huge step in the right direction. So I can't wait to see, to see more of, more of that kind of stuff. So we talked about the importance of grants, like the catalyst grant, but also are there things that members of the climbing community can be doing on more like an, an individual basis to make this space more inclusive and welcoming to adaptive athletes? Yeah, I think I was alluding to this earlier, but simply um, not assuming, you know, ability, um, desire, ambition, um, and risk tolerance as well. Once you, once you get into certain styles of climbing, I think, um, yeah, just open-mindedness is, is the biggest thing and sort of um, realizing that as climbers, we all have adaptations and we all use equipment that's very specific to what we're doing and adaptive folks just have a little extra hurdle to, to getting there. But um, yeah, it's all, it's all possible. And I think, I think people just need to see that and, and, and want to help instead of, um, just shutting people down because they don't look look like them. So I think a lot of people are also scared to um, to just ask curious questions to to folks that that climb with adaptations or or disability. Um, and I think that sort of that sort of furthers the the stigma and 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 adaptive folks feeling um, as less than equal. So. Um, yeah, I would just encourage people to, to be open, to be curious and to ask questions and to be friendly and remember that we're all just out there trying to have a good time. <laughs> Adrian, I'm so glad to get this opportunity to talk to you today. It's been so cool to hear about your story and we can't wait to see what else you do. Yeah, thanks, Lauren. It was a pleasure. And I'm uh, yeah, super psyched on this dude podcast. So thank you for taking the time. Today's show was hosted by Lauren Delaney Miller and produced by Lauren Delaney Miller with help from Shane Johnson and me, Anna Provo. To learn more about the American Alpine Club's grants, visit AmericanAlpineClub.org grants. Applications are open for the Catalyst Grant, the Live Your Dream Grant, and more until February 28th.